This Week in Retronauts. Beware, I live. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode mystery of Retronauts. I'm this week's host, Jeremy Parrish, and with me here to discuss the majestic topic of Williams Entertainment, we have the usual... I'm Bob Stop the New Order Bus Mackey. (laughs) You'll find out what that means later. (laughs) I don't know what that means. And uh, our local Williams expert... Hi, I'm Jazz Ragnall. And we brought Jazz in because, one, I think Defender is his favorite video game ever. Is that correct? Robotron, but Defender is oh. a very close, okay. close one. Well, just both very... of those are Williams games. Yes. And also because he had the knockdown, drag out, interview to end all interviews with Eugene Jarvis about a year ago. Is that why we haven't seen Eugene since? <laughs> <laughs> Where Only one, two men enter, one men leave, and Jazz is here with us. Um, so anyway, yeah, Jazz... Uh, is what you would call an expert on the topic. So he's here to uh, elucidate and enlighten us. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it's um, a topic style that we haven't really done a lot. We don't talk about specific developers or publishers or manufacturers that often. Uh, we usually go for either specific games or series or else bigger, broader topics. But uh, Williams is actually a pretty interesting Uh, case study in game history, I think. Uh, They were a major arcade powerhouse in the golden era of video games. But in reality, looking over their catalog, they only produced something like maybe 15 video games, arcade games in their life. I mean, later they acquired Midway. And so uh, they were kind of, you know, all of Midway's games in the 90s were also Williams games. But from 1980 to like 1989, 91, um, Williams didn't make that many video games. But the ones they did were almost all like top of class, very, very good games. So they're they're one of the kind of uh, rare and precious commodities in that they they emphasized quality over quantity. And they I guess they could afford to be a uh, premium video game developer because they had – a massive and very profitable arcade pinball business to fall back on. And that was kind of their bread and butter. So if you look at, uh, you know, the killer list of video games uh, or something along those lines and check out the Williams releases, it's hundreds of games, but, you know, most of them are pinball or slots. That's kind of what I know them from is pinball yeah. for the most part. And, but when uh, they, the when they did stuff. dabble in video games, like, they, they did it right. Yeah, they did... Um... The kind of the, the sort of the, the the first solid state pinball machines, and uh, uh, you know, sort of had just brilliant sound chips. They did the first voice synthesized um, pinball machine in in, in Gorgar. Well, I mean, Williams, if you want to go way back, basically invented the modern pinball game, the modern pinball table. They the uh, the founder of Williams, I think Henry Harry Williams, Harry Williams, Harry Williams. Um, founded the company in 1943, and in 1946, he invented the concept of the tilt mechanism, which is sort of the the fundamental underpinning that revolutionized pinball games. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've been around for a long time. You know, there's a lot of sort of 
fairly standard sort of pinball machines that they created during the sort of the, the 50s, 60s and 70s. But, but it was in the late 70s that, that I think, you know, perhaps I'm biased because that's when I first started playing their, their, their games. But they produced a, a series of really interesting pin tables where there started to be a sort of almost like um, an arms race in pinball Um <laughs> You know, and and sort of you started getting sort of these increasing kind of gimmicks on the play field, um, like with Black Knight. That's a pinball table that I actually owned for a little while, and so it had the, f- the first kind of raised play field, and it also had um, very powerful magnets that you could kind of trap the ball uh, to stop it from 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 going down the exit gully, magna save as it was called. Just really, really interesting, innovative features, um, and I think it's that sort of. I mean, pinball tables are games, but they really turned them into interesting games. It wasn't just about hitting targets. Um, you know, they sort of, they were, I think they were the first people to, to introduce score multipliers and things like that. And, you know, the idea of having kind of a multi-platform pin table was just a really uh, you know, innovative idea at the time. You know, it had, a, had its dual set of flippers. So you could kind of um, shoot the ball up onto the top part of the playfield. This is Black Knight still, and um, you know, so they had to sort of two playfields in one. Just a just a really interesting thing at a time when a lot of pinball tables were just straight mm. up, sort of just 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 very ordinary playfields, all about target shooting. If you're ever in the Bay Area, I recommend you go to the Pacific Pinball Museum, and you'll see how boring uh, early pinball was. But I guess it was better than dying in a war. So there was that. Yeah, I um, the notes I put together for this episode are, are really about Williams as a video game maker because I don't have much history or interest in pinball. But if you guys wanted to talk more about, you know, some of their early electromechanical games and pinball games, um, please knock yourselves out. That's that's interesting to me in kind of a historical sense. But um, like I said, I don't have a lot of history playing pinball. Um, I, think- I think probably. Revenge of the Gator is the most pinball I've ever played. That's a good pinball game, though. It is. I think we'll eventually have a pinball episode. It needs to happen. Yeah, I I agree. Um, But were there any particular games that stand out? I mean, in the 90s, they set the all-time sales record with the Addams Family pinball game. That was them. Okay, yeah. Which which sold, I think, a total of 20,200-something copies. That's the best-selling pinball table ever. So that kind of gives you an idea of the different numbers that you deal with when you're talking about, <clears throat> you know, uh, location-based amusements mm-hmm. versus home video games. I mean, and the best-selling still... video game ever is like 40 million, 50 million copies. So it's, you know, an order of magnitude difference. And if you go to anywhere with pinball machines, there's always an Adam's Family machine. Like, even if there's two machines, one will be Adam's Family. It's all, It's always happens <laughs> whenever I go out. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's... If that was mostly localized to the U.S., which I assume it was because of the license and the cost of manufacturing and distributing games, uh, pinball tables, 20,000 tables across the U.S. is a lot of pinball tables. Yeah, so that's, that's like a lot of one in every. That's like one in every shop. It's, it's just a crazy number. Yeah, a lot of them ended up in bars. I mean, pinball tables mm-hmm. tended to end up in bars rather than arcades. I mean, at least I feel like I used to go into arcades in the states, and they didn't have any, uh, anywhere near as many pin tables uh, as 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 they would in the UK. But in the UK, they it was rare to have 
uh, pin tables in bars because they would have slot machines at that point. Uh, mm. You know, far more profitable than a pin pin table. Uh, right, and that's that's eventually what Williams decided too. They were kind of like the Konami of their era. They <laughs> they got out of video games and got out of pinball and switched over to casinos, and that's what they are now. WMS Industries is wow. uh, is a company that's pretty much about casino entertainment. There's, yeah. There was kind of a, and this is, a, I think we're jumping ahead, but there is kind of like an arms race as well in terms of uh, gambling machines now. Whenever I go to Vegas, which is not often, it's usually for work, it's like some slot machines are like sit-down experiences like Ghostbusters or something like that. It's crazy. Like I can see a real arcade mm. machine like mentality, although you're going to be spending a lot more than 25 cents. It makes you feel better about sitting there uh, frittering, away, frittering away your pension <laughs> uh, a dollar at a time. Yeah. So um, yeah, so like I said, are there any any Williams pinball tables that jump out at you besides Black Knight, Adam's Family? I would have written some down if I thought to, but Adam's Family definitely is like the number one pinball machine for me. Twilight Zone, I'm not sure if Twilight Zone is a Williams machine, is it? I think that might be ballet. Okay, yeah. I mean, like, for, for some reason, I, I know who makes a video games, but for as much as I love pinball, I have to actually look up who mm. manufactured the table. Well, let me let me ask you this: What was it about Adam's Family that was so that made it so popular? I mean, I, yeah, the Adam's Family movie was pretty it did pretty well for itself, but like, why why that property? What was it about that table that was so amazing? I mean, like, even if you don't like the Adam's Family, I think it was the first one of the first tables to really integrate the LCD screen with the um, pinball table. So occasionally you play mini games on the LCD screen, but it was also one of the first pinball tables I think to have like a narrative. Mm-hmm. Like they were abstracting this narrative through what you were doing with the ball, and um, yeah, in, in that way it was like really ambitious for a pinball game. I'm sure there's things that predated that did the same thing, but it just all really came together and had like so many sound samples, and it was just it was just fun and funny too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had everything. I think. Yeah, I had a lot of little gimmicky uh, sort of sets of bumpers and things like that that would kind of you could string together to 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 create sample like almost like narrative samples. Mm. Um, it also had a, a very very cool skill shot. Uh, mechanism, which was you know just fun to try and shoot for multi ball, of course that was very popular at the time. So it just brought together, I think, a lot of different features, and uh, you know it was a fun, like, like Bob said, it was a fun machine to play. Um, had a lot of different things going for it, and so you know it didn't feel like that. Uh, some pinball tables feel a little bit rote. You know you have to sort of shoot down the drop targets and then shoot them down again to advance the multiplier, and it just you know you sort of. Each time you play, you're, you're you're playing a very specific way to try and to boost your score. This had a whole variety of different ways that you could boost your score, and it had a sort of a random element to it, so that um, depending on what you were doing, um, you could start sort of uh, you know advancing your score by a variety of different ways, and that just made it fun to play. I think uh, this is turning into the Adams Family Pinball Podcast, but I think also like visually, it was very uh, it might, people could say it's busy, but I think. 
there was more detail crammed into that table than I'd ever seen before. And if you can get a look at, like, really close, like, all the bumpers have art on them. Like, way back in the back of the table, the things you never see have all these great illustrations that you're never going to see while you're playing. You have to, like, mm-hmm. go around the machine and look at them. So things like that, details like that are why that machine really – I have to play it every time I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it have a little hatch where a mechanical thing comes yes. out and grabs your – Oh, that's yeah. amazing. That's how you get multi-ball. And oh, that's, that's actually awesome. a pretty easy machine to do multi-ball on. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, it's pretty easy to get. Huh. Yeah. So, okay. I think you guys made a pretty good case for it. I can see why that would be a big deal for them. And it, it does, you know, kind of, it makes a nice narrative, you know, the, the sort of the climax of, of William's history after 50 years sort of uh, triumphing over the uh, the rest of the pinball industry. Uh, yeah. So so the, the history of William's is really complicated. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of reading on it and um, still, I'm still a little fuzzy on it. Like the dates on... Different sites uh, conflict with one another. Like Wikipedia has one set of dates and K-Love has a set of different dates. And Williams fan site that I looked at has a completely different set of dates for for major pivotal events. So I'm not really sure exactly which dates are correct. I mean it's hard enough to find dates even in the 80s. So going back to the 40s, I feel like it's even worse in terms of records and whatnot. Well, like um, the exact establishment of – uh, Williams Electronics seems to be in some doubt. Some people say 67. Some people say 74. That's a pretty big difference. A lot, a lot happened in that, in that time span. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was uh, you know, all of Vietnam basically. Um, so it's kind of weird that uh, it's so, so abstract. But um, in any case, the company was founded in 1943. Everyone seems to agree on that. Um, 1946, the pinball tilt mechanism was invented. Um, and it started out as Williams Manufacturing Company. In 1958, they became Williams Electronic Manufacturing, which I think signified their change from electromechanical amusements to um, something that was more, you know, about uh, electronics as opposed to just uh, simple mechanisms. I find it kind of strange that they were founded in the midst of World War II when making pinball machines with, like, metal and glass and stuff would be frivolous, like, for Americans. Well, did they did, use would, metal and glass? Maybe they used wooden balls. Um, maybe, um, hmm. like... Or maybe they were making them for servicemen. They, that could have been, like... I, that's that's how were, Sega started, right? For, like, military yeah, bases. Yeah, but that was, that was, like, after World War II yeah. in Japan. This when was in Chicago. Hmm. So maybe it had something to do with, like, the mafia. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they were parachuting, like, pinball machines over Dresden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly um, what the idea there was, like, the, the timing on that. But, um, I mean, the company really sort of took off after World War II. So um, I'm sure the the greater availability of, of materials be, uh, was a big part of that. Um, but in any case... Like I said, in either 67 or 74, um, from the way I understand it, they established a company called Williams Electronics Incorporated and that new company acquired the old Williams. Hmm. I'm not sure what the story is there. I wasn't able to find a good explanation of that in anything that I read. But uh, that's the point at which they really, I think, started to move more toward the uh, solid state uh, arcade games that uh, and the pinball games that Jazz was talking about. Uh, but, you know, our story really begins in 1980 when they manufactured and distributed Defender, which was, I believe, their very first video game. Yes. They actually did do a Pong clone called Oh, that's right. Ball. That's right. Yes. Uh, it's in my notes here. Yes. Okay. So 
Uh, did you ever play those, Paddle Ball and Pro Tennis? No, I did. Uh, those sort of, uh, I think those were only released in the States uh, in small amounts. Right. So how would you remember which Pong clone you played? Yeah, exactly. There's like 10,000 of them, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one thing to say Pong clone, but if you look at these games, they are exactly yeah. Pong. Like the exact same visuals, the numbers at the top are exactly the same in the same places. Um, you know, you, you look at all the Flappy Bird clones on the uh, the Apple Store and... It seems pretty dire, and you're like, "What's the what's this video game industry coming to?" But guys, it's, it's been there since the start. Every game from like 1973 to 1977 was Pong, mm-hmm. um, and that's how Williams. Yeah, that's, that is how Williams got started. Um, <clears throat> they created paddleball and pro tennis, which, from what I can tell, based on screenshots and videos and stuff, they were exactly the same game, just with different names. I guess the idea is like. You call it something different, and people imagine that they're playing a different sport. But it was it was all the same thing. Um, but yeah, those were like two. Maybe there was one other game that they created before Defender. But Defender was really the start of Williams as a video game maker. Like it, it was it was a seven year gap between Paddleball and Defender. So clearly. They were just kind of jumping on this trend. They were like, oh, Pong, that's a big thing. People like that. We should do that. And then they did it and probably didn't do much for them because everyone else had this, the exact same idea. And they kind of ducked out until 1980 when, I guess, uh, Eugene Jarvis came along and said, guys, I have the best idea. <laughs> yeah, he had actually been designing pinball tables for um, for Williams. And, and, I, and I think they wanted to get into the video game market and and – you know, Eugene, uh, it was an engineer and programmer. Um, he did the programming for the for the pinball tables. You know, just was a natural choice. So, so you know, he was sort of drafted to 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 create Defender. You know, it was on proprietary technology written in six five zero two code. And um, you know, he just he just created a game that he wanted to play. Is you know, based on a sort of inspiration was taken from a a variety of video game. Uh, at the time, uh, including asteroids, and um, you know, he just sort of just started designing this game and iterating. And you know, what he came up with was was something you know sublime, uh, you know, fantastic machine. That, it was revolutionary. Yeah, uh, very complicated controls for for an arcade machine at the time. Um, I'm actually trying to remember how many. Uh, Buttons it had, but you know, up down you had a reverse button activated by your thumb, uh, thrust and fire. I mean, it was really gave you incredible maneuverability at a time when most arcade machines were kind of you know had you sitting at the bottom of the screen and uh, and and firing upwards. You know, this is you know you were flying over a scrolling landscape as a wraparound landscape. I think it was the first horizontally scrolling. I, I think so. Game. Yeah. I mean, I'm reading I Am Error now, and I think if you read that, you will gain a new appreciation for things like scrolling mm. this early in time, just like the magic that had to work. And uh, Well, he didn't just have scrolling. He had a mini-map that, that showed too, the entire uh, playing field and the location of every, you know, dynamic interactive element. All the in aliens, assembly language, the, the, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. like this game, I always think of it as being like a 1983 game or somewhere around that era, like from the Pitball pinball pitfall <laughs> the pitfall period but no this game predates pac-man it predates donkey kong it's an extremely complicated piece of programming and engineering and game design 
And uh, I think what's remarkable is that the timing on that was just right because, you know, one of the, the very first arcade game, video game, uh, was computer space, which was also very complicated, had physics and, you know, you were in space shooting stuff and uh, lots of buttons and people looked at it and were like, I don't, I don't get this. But, you know, s- several years later, uh, I guess nine years later, um, people had played enough video games that they kind of grasped it. They had played, like you said, asteroids. So they were used to the concept of thrusting to move forward and, you know, rotating their ship to move around and pressing a separate button to fire. So, you know, we had we had gotten collectively as as game players away from needing just to like move a knob so that your paddle moves up and down to something a lot more demanding and a lot more complex. And I think Defender was a really well-timed game in that respect because it was complex, but people were really getting into video games. They played Space Invaders and Galaxian and were like, I want the next thing, and this was the next thing. Yeah, it was extremely complicated. And it, you know, when you look at the sort of the history of the world records on the machine, you know, a lot of games, you know, the world records are scored quite quickly and then there's sort of diminishing returns. But but this it, it happened over a period of years where where player it took players quite a few years to sort of really truly master the game. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, a lot of the time you you do think of it as a sort of a, a sort of almost like a mid-80s game um, because it was it hung around for so long. It did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't really start going to arcades a lot until 1983, 84. That was the point at which I was old enough that my parents were like, yeah, okay, you can look at these video games. And like Defender was still there. I played it a lot. And it still, you know, even in that time, um, really held up well against everything else. It had that sort of minimalist art. It almost looked like vector art, even though it wasn't. But, you know, it was uh, black backgrounds with very uh, kind of outline, bright outline graphics. So it had that sort of sharpness. I think it had a high resolution monitor. Um, and the the very distinct visual uh, style that Jarvis created, uh, you know, not just for that game, but also for Robotron. Um, like it, it had, I wouldn't say timeless, but it aged very well mm-hmm. compared to more detailed sprites. Like Pac-Man looked great in 1980, but, you know, by 1982 and when Pac-Man came out, it, it looked a lot more dated. Uh, whereas Defender, I think, just looked good. It also had really, really good behavior pattern programming. You know, the sort of the AI of the game was was really clever. They didn't – it was sort of based on uh, mathematical uh, equations uh, and – it gave a certain sort of fuzzy logic to to the way that the a lot of the aliens moved. They all had their own sort of particular patterns, and that gave the game a real feeling of sort of feeling alive and feeling intelligent, and also making it that much more challenging to play. Um, you know, aliens would shoot not at you but in front of you, so so it would try and shoot where you were going. Uh, they would sort of track you in certain ways. Uh, you could trick the AI and, and kind of exploit it sometimes, and that's how you, you know, get get your record scores. But you know, overall, it was a, a very very sophisticated behaving game compared to sort of the pattern games of yeah. Of, compared of, to Pac Man, it's contemporary. Like the same year, Pac Man came out, and people pretty quickly said, "Oh, we figured out the patterns. Now we can get to screen two fifty six." Right. Yeah. So so Defender, yeah, it's probably worth explaining what Defender was. It was – we've talked about it being a shooter, but instead of being a sort of vertical shooter where you're shooting up like you said, um, it was a horizontal shooter. I don't 
I think there probably must have been some sort mm. of horizontal shooter before that, but I can't think of what. I mean, sort of the the big one that people sort of count as the start of of that genre was Scramble, and that was 1981. So was Moon Patrol? <laughs> Moon Patrol was 82, 83, okay. and that wasn't really. I mean, that, that, was, that was almost like an endless runner in a yeah, sense. It wasn't, right. it wasn't a free-moving uh, shooter. It was a platformer kind of. Um, I mean, what was also unusual was the fact that, you know, as the name suggests, you're defending, you know, these 10 humanoids that kind of walk around at the bottom of the, the screen. You could pick them up and drop them off for bonus points. That became a sort of a Williams theme of, of, of saving, mm. saving things, you know, as uh, sort of one of the temples that... that, that uh, certainly drives things like Robotron and uh, Joust too. Yeah, you can sort of see that as an evolutionary concept. Like they're taking, you know, you had the bottom of the screen where your your missile base was in Space Invaders and you had the little shields above that that could be whittled away. And then you take that a step further and you get the cities and missile command that you're trying to protect. And then you take that a step further and all of a sudden you have the things you have to protect moving around and interacting with the enemies and the enemies don't destroy them they swoop down and capture them and then try to take them back to their base. And then they absorb, uh, an alien ship can absorb a human. And when it does that, it becomes an upgraded enemy and becomes extremely dangerous. So not only do you want to defend the humans for points, it's also the key to surviving because once a an enemy becomes a mutant, then it's extremely deadly. It moves around very quickly and makes a beeline for you. And it's very, very difficult to shake those off once they start flying around. Yeah, plus you have the, the betas that appear after you've taken a certain amount of time to finish a level. They, they're, they're sort of there to hurry you along or kill you, one of the two. And uh, again, you know, just helps keep the frantic pace of the game up to a, to a level where, you know, it was quite taxing. It was a tiring game to play. I mean, I used to play it for hours on end, and mm-hmm. I'd always feel really, really tired after a particularly long session. How much time could you get out of a quarter, you you personally? Unlimited. Oh, really? As, as long as the arcade was open. So, <laughs> so you uh, shut a lot of places down. Yeah, uh, 18 hours on one game was my wow. longest period oh, of time. Uh, I can't even, yeah, I don't even put that, that much time into most games these days. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't quite know how I managed to do it. I, I'm, you know, sort of, uh, you'd have to sort of do a quick pee run every few hours, you know, and sort of have Burn something to your eat. extra lives. Yeah, basically. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I had the British record for a while, and um, and, and it kind of it, it bugged me that the, the arcade never stayed, my local arcade at least, never stayed open long enough for me to be able to go for a world record. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fun game. People just used to stand there and watch me play it, you know, because it's, you know, it's a, it's a fun game to watch. It's very, very fast, very smooth. It's frenetic. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, I think people would just sort of sit there sort of not quite believing some of the maneuvers that you could pull mm. off but the controls were just so so fine and you were able to have such a high degree of control over the the, the spaceship that you could do some really amazing things particularly when the machine sort of slows down when there's a lot a lot of stuff going on you can kind of almost queue up moves like you can mm. in street fighter and so um, you know, you can queue up moves and take your hands off the controls and watch the game play itself for a couple of seconds and things <laughs> like that. You know, just really kind of, you know, show offy things. But uh, you know, that's that's the mark of a great arcade game is is that you can you know uh, make it look like entertainment for yeah, that, other people. That is that way. is another interesting thing is the the control system because this was before the joystick had become sort of standardized. It was it was really Pac Man that that kind of made the control stick. 
a thing, like a, a very kind of universal standard, right? Right. And this this happened around the same time as Pac-Man. So it was built more around the Space Invaders, Asteroids concept of you have buttons for each thing you want to do. So you had, like you said, up, down, you had thrust, you had shoot, and was there a, a smart bomb button? There's a smart bomb button and a hyperspace oh, button Oh, and right, well. hyperspace also, yeah. And hyperspace, did, was there a rhyme and reason behind that or was it totally random? Uh, it was random. Okay. Mm. So, yeah, if you got into too much of a sticky situation, you could hit hyperspace, and hopefully that would take you someplace less dangerous. Yeah, sometimes it would put you right on top of a bomb, and and that was just one of those sort of random elements. Uh, you know, it would just kill you outright, and yeah. there's nothing you could do about it. But, I mean, you know, it's it's not unfair because you are pressing that button and taking you're, – you're gambling. It's not like right. you spawn in the level on top of a bomb and, oh, it's game over. Well, that's that's crappy design. It's like – you have to think, you know, this is a really tough situation I'm in. I'm about to die. Is it worth it to hyperspace and maybe go to safety or maybe die instantly? Yeah, so in a way, really, it's like, like the video coin. Yeah, it's a video game equivalent of a tilt button. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you shake the machine and hope that you're, you're not going to set it off and 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 uh, shut it down. And, uh, you know, it's a very clever, clever mechanic that I think uh, Asteroids was... Maybe yeah, the first it did game that to too, have yeah. that. I'm not sure if it was in Space Wars or not, but it's certainly in Asteroids. I don't think so. I think Space War was much much more limited. Just like fly around, use gravity, shoot. So the um, what was it? What was it you called the guys that appear when you're taking too long on a stage? What are, what are those called? Betas. Betas. Mm. So were those the first sort of like um, instance of of a game design element being placed there specifically to pe- keep players from dawdling? You know, video arcade games were very much about the quarter drop rate and trying to get people to spend like ninety seconds to three minutes on a game before they put in another quarter. So that is something that became much more common. Like Berserk had Evil Auto who would show up. And right. then um, Spelunker wasn't an arcade game, but, you know, you'd have um, the uh, you'd have the ghost kind of float in in Spelunker. Uh, you'd have the, the, the pterodactyl in, in Joust. That's right. Yeah, so that's a common theme. I think, um, I think that might have been stolen from Asteroids, in fact, because Asteroids had the little tiny spaceship that would come out um, – when only a few rocks were left and would was very accurate and would shoot at you. But actually that was... But I thought that was more like a scoring bonus opportunity. Well, yeah, that, that, mm. to, 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 get, to get those world records, you would actually hunt those mm. endlessly and, uh, you know, usually involve flying up the screen, uh, off the top of the screen. Right, kind of hanging out in limbo. Yeah, yeah, and just shooting at them as they came out. Um, you know, I used to do that for hours on end. I don't know how, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was it was an exploit. But the the betas they they weren't worth enough points to do that. Plus, they were really hard. I mean, they 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 would they would kill you and very quickly would sort of multiply and uh, you know get to the point where there's just no matter how good you were, you you couldn't keep shooting them. The other thing that uh, Defender had, which was sort of an interesting concept, and uh, I think it was the first time 
um, it was ever used was if all your humanoids got destroyed, you would go into hyperspace. The landscape would explode and you'd just be stuck in space with a whole bunch of mutants rather than landers <laughs> uh, in a very, very, very challenging environment. And, um, you know, again, it was just a sort of a, a way of uh, penalizing the player basically for poor play. Um, and then, you know, uh, and not only just saying, well, you're obviously not particularly good because you just lost all your, your your guys, now we're going to punish you by making the game ten times harder than it normally is. So you know, it's it was certainly a great way of keeping the coins rolling in. Yeah, but but that's also interesting because it's not just like oh, you you lost all your humans, game's over. Like it actually did give you kind of a fighting chance. I mean, maybe you're not good at defending humans, but maybe you're good at shooting enemies. So you know, there is this this kind of extra opportunity built in, a little bit of a grace period. Yeah, um, and it was definitely a very interesting mechanic. And, uh, you know, if you were very, very good, you could survive a couple of waves maybe, you know, use your smart bombs and uh, and, and then, you know, it would reset and you get your 10 humanoids back again every five levels. Okay, so so you could eventually get out of hyperspace and back into normal space. Yeah, absolutely. Not that I ever did that. <laughs> never, I was never that good, but what, yeah, it was... Has Jazz ever streamed this for us on our site? I, and if, if not, why? Hasn't this happened yet? Defender. Um... Yeah, have you? I don't no, remember. I never, never, never streamed it. I'd, the part of the problem was that De- Defender is such a difficult game to actually control using a joypad. Mm. Um, you know, home conversions uh, have always been sort of somewhat lacking because they've used the eight-way joystick for for movement, and there's something about that that just doesn't work particularly well. There's, there's sort of having up and down and a reverse button allows you to do very particular maneuvers that you just can't do on an eight-way joystick. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, um, you know, just it, it, it's a very, very difficult game to play on any console. I can't think of one console version that has, has, has been particularly good. I think we need to expense a GoPro and strap it onto Jazz and send it into like the Musée Mécanique or whatever. Whoever has a Defender machine. Well, another possibility. You don't. You don't have a Defender machine. Jazz? No, never, never had that. How? How? Um, you know, another possibility would be to set up some sort of Mame situation where we get you a custom controller that's built to resemble the Defender console, and you can configure Mame to use basically any kind of con- any kind of controller you want. That, I feel like that would be worth doing. Surely it can't be that expensive to rig up um, like a simple... Mm. You could definitely do that using one there's, of those complex be, arcade controllers. There's got to be someone out there who makes like custom Defender-style, like just custom controllers. And they're you know, probably listening to ball. us. Yeah. <laughs> they they're like, guys, be. guys. Okay, well, email email us at uh, j j a z dot r i g n a l l at usgamer.net. And let us know, let Jazz know about the the controller of his dreams, because we would love to see uh, an eight an eighteen hour stream of Jazz <laughs> playing Defender. And actually, it wouldn't have to be eighteen hours; it could be as long as you wanted, because this arcade doesn't close. I'd have to practice a little bit to get back up <laughs> to that crazy level that I used to be at. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, that that kind of level, you you you. You went through uh, a really interesting uh, point, which was apparently some sort of stack overflow error bug uh, when you hit 990,000 points. Every alien that you hit would give you an extra life. And then when you actually clocked the game, you wouldn't get any extra lives until um, basically you earn a a life every 10,000 points. And so if you shot 
10 aliens and got 10 extra lives, you wouldn't get any extra lives until 110,000 points. It sort of it was this very odd overflow error. <laughs> the first few times that we, we did that in my local arcade, we had no idea what was going on and how it worked. It was just sort of one of those really weird things. And I'm pretty sure that only did it once, but if you get more than 256 lives, the machine resets. Hmm. I've had it reset on me once. Wow. Which is kind of weird. Um, is that its way of just saying, I give up? Yeah, basically it's an 8-bit machine, so it can't count higher than 255. Right. Oh, it's like when in Super Mario Brothers, when you get too many lives on the turtle um, on 3-2, and you jump on its shell on the staircase. Eventually, if you get too high, then it'll just give up. Oh. It, I, I don't think I it resets, that. but if you die, then you have actually gone into negative lives. So it'll be game over after you die, I think. Someone's probably going to correct me on that. Someone will definitely correct yeah. me on that. Um, so what did you think of the sequel to Defender Stargate? Is it a is it a favorite also, or do you feel like it lost something in, in the evolution? Um, my friend had the arcade machine. I used to play it a lot, and, I, and, and it... It was that much more sophisticated than Defender. I mean, it didn't it didn't do particularly well commercially because if Defender was hard, then Stargate was that much harder. You know, you, you had uh, you had the eponymous Stargate that you could you fly through to kind of travel to different parts of the landscape. You had a whole bunch more different aliens that made the game that much harder to play. You know, it was just a very very challenging game. I loved it. You know, and but I never got that good at it. My friend was brilliant at it, uh, as you can imagine. He'd sit there and play it for hours on end. Um, but uh, I never quite intricately learned the behavior patterns like I did with the Defender um, aliens. And so uh, I wasn't able to kind of get past that sort of point of where you can just keep playing indefinitely. I, I definitely had a sort of a, a breaking point where I just run out of lives. But it was a... It was a very cool machine, and uh, there were a lot of refinements done to it, so it didn't kind of slow down as much as Defender did, even though there was a lot more going on. I think, um, you know, the Defender was a bit of a learning process for, for, for Eugene Jarvis, and, and, you know, after that, you know, there just weren't quite the sort of the exploits that you could do in, in Defender. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a better game, and that made it worse. Yes. Yeah, in a, in a very f- funny kind of way, right. yeah. Yeah, I um, I never really saw Stargate that I know of. That was what, like nineteen eighty three or so. So, kind of when the arcade market in the U.S. started to go soft. Yeah, a lot of machines. I think it was an upgrade kit, so they're they're quite unusual. And so some 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 arcades sort of bought it as an upgrade, but Defender was still doing really well at that point. So I think there was also an element of uh, why do I need to spend mm. a few thousand dollars on upgrading this machine that's still earning. Great coin. I mean, it's yep. it's it's one of the highest grossing arcade machines of all time. Um, so you know, and and it was continued to to earn good money all the way through the mid mid eighties. I actually didn't see most of these games up until NARC when I was going to the arcade because <laughs> uh, I started going in like eighty seven. You're just a little kid. I was a little baby, but uh, I think by that time the arcade was supposed to be a different. It was like here's a better experience than your home console, so here's things you can't do. So I think they weren't looking well, at these. Well, you old couldn't games. do games like this on a console back then. You know, well, I mean, in nineteen eighty seven, you could yeah. you could do Defender, right? Wasn't yeah, there a Defender but, for but the like uh, there wasn't Defender, but Stargate came okay. out. Okay, but what I'm saying is like I think they didn't have like oh this is a classic kind of mentality. They're like, we want flashy things. So right. I'm familiar with their flashier 90s stuff. And I'm sure this was flashy when it came out, but I, th- these games just weren't around when I was in the arcade. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we're, we're kind of talking about different eras of the company here because when I think of Williams, I think of their sort of pre-1985 stuff. Mm. Like uh, Defender, definitely, but also the other big games from that era were that they made were Sinistar, Robotron, Robotron 2084, and Joust, all of which were just huge. I mean, I, I saw those everywhere. I never really played Sinistar that much because I didn't really get it as a kid, but Joust and uh, Robotron were definitely like games that you looked at and you got. They were very accessible, but also crazy difficult, particularly Robotron. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Robotron, I mean, that that's just the the, the quintessential shooter as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that, that game basically defined the the last console generation. Like half half the indie <laughs> games that came out yeah. were twin stick shooters designed in the style of Robotron. Yeah, I mean it's a classic game, just just you, your gun and a, a horde of enemies, single screen shooter. Um the only thing that you do is just pick up humans and and blast everything else to pieces. You know, it's 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 a perfect sort of uh, test of your reflexes, basically. And it just gets crazy harder. I had a friend uh, who had the world record for a while and uh, watching him play it was unreal. You know, I mean, he'd just be navigating through, you know, giant swarms of robots and, uh, you know, people would just stand there and watch him play for hours because it was, you know, unreal. Yeah, I mean, there was so much happening on that screen. I think the reason, <clears throat> I think the reason Robotron kind of became a big thing this previous console generation on Xbox 360 and PS3 wasn't just because of Geometry Wars. It was because that was really the first time home consoles could do that. Now you had you know controller standard with twin sticks. Now you had the ability to just make that many things move around on screen. You know, if you had tried to do Robotron even on a 16-bit console in the 90s, it would have been a disaster. You didn't have the right controller for it, and you didn't have nearly enough power to push that many things around the screen. I don't know how how Eugene Jarvis did it. Was that also a 6502 processor? Yeah, it was. It the, the, the conversion that was probably the most like the original was actually the Atari Lynx version. That was very, very close. And hmm. I think that was, that you know, the, the Atari Lynx was based on is it based on Amiga um, architecture, Commodore Amiga architecture, maybe, and and it had a it had a sort of uh, oh yeah, and Lynx had the ambidextrous style, God. so you could actually do the twin sticks. Right. For some reason, these Atari systems huh. have the best ports of these arcade games, like uh, Tempest, isn't well, the I mean, Jaguar? I, I, I make sense, but it's just yeah, funny. I mean, it's just like Atari, you must get a Jaguar. Atari, that's that's a an ep- a different episode altogether. Uh-oh, but there it comes. But Atari games and Atari Inc. were technically separate companies, but they were still very close. Yeah. And, Atari Inc.'s consoles did great, great conversions of Atari games, arcade titles. But yeah, I mean, they they tried to bring back Robotron for N64 and right. uh, on PlayStation with Robotron 64, Robotron X, but it, it just it didn't have. I think you could use two N64 controllers, like in a so. really weird yeah. way, like the pod racing setup. You, I, yeah, weird. That sounds very strange. <laughs> did, did you ever play those, the, the 32 64 bit attempts to reboot Robotron? I'm, I think I'm, I played Robotron X for a, for a bit, but I just I didn't take to it particularly mm. well. It didn't feel right. It was cool looking though. I think yeah, it had I think, I think it came too 3D. early. Yeah. Like say, uh, Sony eventually brought out the DualShock for PlayStation and or the Dual Analog before that, and that would have worked. But I think Robotron X predated that. I yeah, think it, it did. was like a 1996 or seven game, and the Dual Analog was later, six, 97, 98. So yeah, it was just kind of before its time, but but last generation, 
like it was just a kind of a perfect storm of you know the controls were right the power was right and there was also you know people were starting to look and say hey you know maybe the way games used to be in the 80s like that very simple pick up and play style i i can get into that maybe not every game has to be a massive cinematic experience the last 60 hours maybe there's value in you know just a, a quick burst of play um, and so, yeah, Robotron seemed like a perfect thing for them to bring back. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the other thing was that you, you got the arcade comp- compilations and, and you know, for the first time, Robotron was, was like you said, you know, properly playable with, with dual sticks. And that was that was great because we'd seen some sort of conversions beforehand, but it's just not very playable with a single controller and a fire button. It, you know, you... The whole point of Robotron is being able to run in, in one direction and fire, you know, behind you or in front of you or up and down, depending on wherever things are about to hit you. Yeah, that, that, that that's a problem with all kinds of classic arcade games because, you know, the, the controller wasn't necessarily the standard approach. Some things you can fake better than others. Like Spy Hunter isn't as fun without a steering wheel that you can and a gas pedal, but you can still play it with a D-pad. Um but, you know, something like Marble Madness or Crystal Castles, you really want a trackball for those. It's just not the same thing. And, and I think Robotron is one of those too. Um, yeah, you just need you need that that proper experience to really to really have it, you know, to, to have the satisfying feel. Yeah, the, uh, one of their games that is that does translate perfectly well is, is Joust. That's got very, mm-hmm. very simple controls, just left, right, and flap, uh, so that you can do those on, on uh, any, any old machine. And uh, I remember playing a conversion of that on, on Atari f- for hours on, on, on end because we didn't actually have a, a Joust arcade machine in our local arcade, not for a, quite a long time until they kind of got an old second-hand one. But that was a fun game, you know, just, uh, again, you know, it had the element of picking up things and, in this case, picking up uh, eggs before they hatched into other uh, baddies. Um, but it just... just uh, what an odd game to come up with, you know, fly around and, and basically make sure that you, your, uh, what do you call it, your pole, your jousting stick. Your, your, yeah, your lance. Lance, that's right. Um, is higher than the opponents and you kill them and, and, and knock knock the an egg out of them that you pick up. Um, but damn, is that one hard game? You know, it's, it's again designed really specifically to, to to bring in lots of money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was designed by Williams' other star designer, John Newcomer, who uh I don't I don't know that he ever really did much after after the Williams kind of golden era of arcade games. Uh whereas Jarvis, you know, went on to do a lot of other things uh throughout his career. Um but yeah it's a it is a very weird premise like okay jousting yeah that that makes sense but now you're jousting in the air and you're flying on an ostrich for some reason and the bad guys are all <laughs> on vultures and um i want to explore the lore of the joust world like, there's, there's got to be, be some i mean there's a lava troll if you fly too close to the lava later in the level did they ever uh, make like the, you know, the handle come up and try to grab you and you have to flap really quickly to escape the lava troll i'm sure he figures into it but i mean was there ever like a comic you know when atari made all those comics for games that didn't have any story at all it was just like uh, we're just going to make something up was that atari there, force I think? there uh, there might have been a comic based on joust but i hmm. don't actually Someone know find of that, it please. <laughs> uh, what I like about this, though, like speaking seriously for a moment, uh, 
the momentum uh, of your flight, I've never really, I can't think of a game before this where there was that sense of momentum where you couldn't stop on a dime because you were on a bird. You know, um, you couldn't just turn around in the air. You would have to like, you know, I'm I'm searching for words here, but you guys know what I mean. Yeah, it was all about the inertia. Right, right, right. Inertia. Yeah, you would continue. uh, Not momentum, what? Same thing maybe. Well, yeah, your momentum becomes inertia when (laughs) you try to stop. Um, did but, any games do that? I just it, it struck me as like uh, like playing this. I was just like, wow, like this is not like playing with Mario. Well, actually, Mario Mario, yeah, Mario did have that momentum. That is true. Yeah, yeah, that, that inertia. I guess they just amped it up uh, for Joust compared to yeah, Mario. like when you would when you would land, there would be the skidding sound effect, and your your ostrich would kind of uh, make these quick steps trying to stop. Um, and and really, you know, even even beyond your interaction with the ground. Uh, the the gameplay itself, the flight, was about inertia and maintaining momentum and maintaining maintaining altitude with the press of a button. Uh, because you flew, you flapped your wings by pressing the fly button. Uh, you couldn't hold it down; you had to keep pressing it, just like you know a bird flying. And you would kind of sink after, as you stopped uh, as you stopped flapping. So you had to really be be mindful of your height and. Um, how quickly and how uh, how effectively you manage to maintain your altitude. You also could use a sort of the bouncing as well. You, ba- mm-hmm. you bounced off rocks and off the top of the screen and, you know, a, a sort of when you're playing at a very high level, that was actually the, t- the tactic was to to fly up very, very quickly, bounce off the top of the screen and then down onto enemies mm-hmm. um, because if you tried to sort of fly at, straight at them, they would always beat you. They'd right. be very difficult to, 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 to sort of uh, knock off the, the, their mounts. Yeah, and there there was a certain level of expertise required for the the level ending element too, the ter- pteranodon or pterodactyl that would come out, basically to say you're taking too long. It would start to fly at you, and it was indestructible and would destroy you unless you managed to hit it just perfectly in the mouth with your lance. And you could kill the ter- pterodactyl, but like that that took really steady hands and a really great sense of you know maintaining your flight. Was there any equivalent for that in Balloon Fight, the blatant shameless ripoff of this game? Uh, it had the lightning bolt that would fly around. I don't think you, you could destroy yeah. the lightning bolt. And it had the fish instead of a troll. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, like Nintendo doesn't really rip off people a lot, but man, with, with Balloon <laughs> Fight, they were just oh. like, let's just rip some joust off. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's a good game to, to rip off. And they did add the balloon trip, which is... Which That's my is favorite nice, part, yeah. yeah. It has the best music, if nothing else. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Joust was uh, was definitely an arcade classic. That was one of those games... Uh, I know I've talked about this before, but when I was a kid, my grandparents uh, managed... Uh, you know, they supervised a dormitory, and the lobby had a bunch of video games that would cycle in and out. And I know there were a couple of holidays where... The uh, the arcade manager, since no one was in the dormitory during the holidays, would just set the games on free play for me. And uh, Joust was was one of those that I got to play for free over Christmas one year. And uh, I never got that great at it, but I definitely got the hang of it and played it a lot. Good fun. Yeah, I remember playing the egg waves. I always used to like mm-hmm. those best, trying to sort of pick up the eggs as quickly as, quickly as, as possible, possible before they turned into monsters. Yeah, and even... even um, you know, uh, even though it wasn't directly patterned after Joust, like the overall structure of the the platforms and the stage and the egg waves and things like that, like you could see hints of that in games like Mario Brothers also, where it was basically like this sort of series of platforms, different levels, things would appear, you had to deal with them in, in a specific way. Like it was very kind of this sort of quintessential arcade experience, the one screen action game that... uh Really, I don't know. They they 
they just did a good job with what, Joust. What year was Joust? Uh, I think that was, I want to say 82. Okay. And it might have been 83. Mario Brothers was 83, 84. Yeah, I was wondering uh, what came first there, but I figured it was Joust. Um, you know, it probably, I, I don't think that was like one came after the other deliberately. I think it was just, you know, that kind of common concept. Like lateral thinking. Yeah. So we've pretty much gone through all of classic Williams at this point. We did. There was one other big game that we didn't touch on, which was Sinistar. And unfortunately, I don't really know that much about that game. Like I said, I saw it in the arcades, and I was just like, I don't get this. So I never really played it. But it has quite a following. It has, I think, maybe because of its sort of unique personality. It had sampled voices, and it has this sort of interesting sense of progressive um, sequence in the uh, the gameplay. Like, yeah, you're collecting pieces of, of of a bomb that you need to put together to be able to destroy Sinistar, who's sort of also being constructed elsewhere on the screen, um, and it's just basically a race against time. And 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 uh, once Sinistar <laughs> reaches um, sentience, he'll come after you and start yelling at you, which is kind of, you know it, it's a brilliant voice sample, mm. and I. I don't know whether arcades just turned it up or whether it was just naturally like that, but uh, you know this arcade machine would would yell at you, and it was very intimidating. What what, what did it say? I, I keep thinking it, it had Berserk. a lot of voice samples. Okay. It was like, "Beware, I live." That's right. I, I hunger. Do. Yeah, run. Yeah, run, coward. Uh, yeah, that that was um, that's something I definitely remember. That and Dragon's Lair were just like the chattiest video games. Yeah. Dragon's Lair! Like they would just go over just, and over. You could always make it out over the din of the yep. arcade, just yep. that one There'd voice. Be bleeps and bips and, and Dragon's Lair! <laughs> um, but yeah, Sinistar, like to me, the, the thing that's interesting about that is that it kind of takes the Defender concept of there being a video game world beyond the boundaries of the screen where things are happening and gives that more focus and more continuity. Like Defender, you know, there were aliens and, and humans outside of what you could see and you had to worry about the aliens gra- grabbing the humans. But you were talking to me earlier about the fact that um, Eugene Jarvis said basically to kind of balance the the load of the game, like it would kind of randomly reshuffle the location of enemies uh, to keep to keep it from being, uh, you know, to, to suffer, keep it from suffering too much slowdown. So there was this kind of like inconsistency about uh, about Defender, but Sinistar, uh, basically, there's this huge space field, and you're flying around, and like you said, you're gathering crystals to create a bomb. But then there is an enemy base, and there are little enemy miners or workers or whatever, kind of like drones, that are taking these pieces of Sinistar and assembling him. So there is like this thing happening off screen that you can't see, but it's there and it's progressive and. You have to, you know, again, watch the little mini-map at the top of the screen like Defender and be aware of what's happening beyond the boundaries of, of your point of view. And that's that's a really – it's a very sophisticated concept for games. And even, you know, like looking further into video games, console games, like things didn't really exist outside the boundaries of the screen, which is why you got games like Mega Man and Ninja Gaiden where if you scrolled back and then scrolled forward again – 
enemies would respawn because there was no persistence to that world. It wasn't this concept of like, you killed that enemy, now it's not going to show up again. It was, well, you scroll past the point where an enemy spawns, so an enemy is going to spawn no matter what. Yeah, definitely, this sort of, uh, it's not exactly a theme of Williams games, but there was, they were very good at kind of creating something that felt like it was its own little persistent world, that things were going on, that, 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 Aliens were in there that had a particular mission to do that that you were there to disrupt. And, you know, it, it kind of brought the games to life, I think. You know, when you look at Space Invaders, you know, which was only a couple of years before Defender, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's a very kind of rote system. You know, the aliens travel backwards and forwards across the screen and come towards you. Very, very simple. Um, you know, you go a couple of years later to, to, to Galaxian, and, you know, the aliens are sort of beginning to react to what you're doing and, and, and move towards you. And there's sort of certain aliens that will just sort of dive bomb you kamikaze style. Um, but they were all kind of out to get you, whereas with Defender and, and, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, um, Sinistar, you know, you had things that were kind of going about their own business that weren't necessarily out to get you. Uh, as their primary mission, but they were there sort of there to mess to mess with you, you know. In, in Defender, it was bombers that would uh, drop mines. Um, you know, you'd get rid of the bombers, but they they weren't kind of coming after you directly. They were just there uh, laying patterns that you would later run into because you weren't paying attention properly. And and I think you know Williams were very good at creating these little sort of micro verses of mm. of. of, of uh, of you know what was sort of going on, and you'd become a part of that, and and be in this little little environment. Yeah, and Sinistar, like the the enemy drones, aren't actively coming after you. All they really care about is building Sinistar, and then Sinistar comes after you. And you know, so your your mission is to collect crystals and create enough bombs to be able to take out Sinistar. But you know, the little drones, if they they, they will commit crimes of opportunity, if they are close to a crystal. They will try to take the crystal so you can't get it. Once you launch a Cinnabomb at Cinnastar, um, and that's a funny word, Cinnabomb. Cinnabon? Yeah. <laughs> they delicious. are dangerous, don't it's eat the, them. It's just a calorie bomb. <clears throat> um, once you launch the bomb at, at a, a bomb at Cinnastar, like the bomb will go after Cinnastar directly. It will, you know, kind of like follow the, the shortest route. But drones will try to intercept it and there's uh, enemies that can fire at it and they will try to shoot it down too. So, yeah, you, you have this kind of complexity within the system, and it's a very kind of closed, uh, finite space. But within that space, there's a lot of, a lot of systems happening. And that's, you know, it, again, Williams made some pretty complex arcade games, but I think the fact that they all were internally consistent and made sense, um, I think that really helps their... Uh, their playability and, and makes them much more immersive and, and they really draw you in. Yeah, it's definitely a sort of an evergreen element to it, I think, you know, because as we were talking about earlier, they're not necessarily kind of pattern games. They 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 react to what you're doing. Um, you know, it creates a very sort of a fuzzy logic to, to the game. So you, you can never quite fully predict what's going on. You know, to, to master these games, you've got to, really understand what the aliens are doing and almost get inside the code matrix style, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that, you know, would happen with me in Defender, you know, it's, I would know what an alien was doing before it would do it and and you would sort of head it off at the pass before it did did its thing to you and 
rather than and it wasn't necessarily kind of learning a pattern it was learning a behavior with with mm. pac-man it was you know it's like i'm going to go down this particular part of the maze and i know that the monster's coming towards me but he's going to turn around at the last minute and go another direction you know which is sort of almost like an exploit as a cheat you know um you you were basically abusing the well, it wasn't even AI. It was the, the sort of the pattern element of the game. Whereas you couldn't exactly do the same thing with a Williams game. You, you'd have to sort of work within a certain tolerance mm. of the, where you would know that this alien was going to do sort right. of X, Y, or Z. And you'd have to have contingencies based on, on, on all of those different things. If, if I were to... <clears throat> if I were to list games that I feel were sort of the uh, the... the establish the basic DNA of real-time strategy games, I feel like Sinistar would belong on there, along with, you know, Radon Bungling Bay, maybe Boko Wars, um, because, you you know, the the, the basic premise of, of Sinistar, it's a shooter, but it's also two sides um, kind of operating in different areas of a confined space of, of a map, gathering resources, each for their own end. Like the the resources the enemy drones gather is to create Sinistar, the sort of uh, ultimate terror weapon, you know, like a hero unit in Warcraft or something. And then your resources, you're you're building to gather a weapon to counter that. So it is, you know, it's it's much simpler than a you know, a modern RTS. But like the idea is there, the 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 the, the sort of fundamentals were in this arcade game. And the, you know, the more I think about it, the more kind of surprising and, and sophisticated that is that they were really thinking way ahead of their time with that one I'm, I'm looking this up right now just to get some images and um, i'm seeing a, a sit-down cabinet have either of you guys ever seen a sit-down sinistar it's it's shaped like a like a bart car or something like a like a train car it looks like like a futuristic one wow that's yeah. a, that's a serious cabinet wow yeah that's not nope. a custom one I either have, i've looks... only ever seen the upright yeah doesn't seem like a game that's conducive to sitting down, but that never stopped anyone before. So yeah, I've never. I seen suppose it. if you got speakers blasting the <laughs> the voice samples right. in your ears, that would Sinistar be Sinistar and surround. Yeah, they could just hire a little cool. person to sit in the front of the cabinet, you know, and have like a voice <laughs> modulator. We didn't have regulations back then, people. These things were run by carnies, right? <laughs> So, so those were kind of the big games that Williams produced in the arcade era. Don't um, forget Bubbles as well. But that Bubbles, was what yeah, a was weird to, game that was. That was uh, that was John Newcomer's first game before Joust. There was Bubbles, and yeah, I'd never really played that before. And then I checked it out last night, and it's strange. I kind of think I, I don't know. I kind of love how basic these titles are. Like that tells you nothing about the game. Just Bubbles, sure. That's it. That's you're, it. you're playing as a bubble. What's not to get? It could be called like Bubble Blast or like Bubble. But you're not blasting anything. You're I just... don't know. I know. It's just like it's not an exciting title. It just it feels it feels like it was made by an engineer and then named by an engineer. It's, you know, it's pretty much the scrubbing bubbles. Yes, it is. I see. <laughs> I maybe, maybe, maybe they're trying bubble. to downplay the whole bubble <laughs> angle. Like don't let, don't let them know. Shh. How how old is that scrubbing bubbles commercial? Man, and the campaign that's that's got to be from the '80s too. So yeah. I, I wonder if if they saw that commercial were like, yes, that's a video game. So you play as a bubble who roams around a sink, like picking up grease stains and crumbs and ants, while avoiding brushes and razor blades for some reason. 
And then there are cockroaches that uh, they come out of the drain. It's so gross. And the cockroaches like come after you and they chase you. And um, yeah, so you, you have, have to, to knock uh, things down the drain, basically. Well, you have to. I think you have and, to keep them from going down the drain, don't you? Well, there's certain things you have to keep from going down the drain, and there's certain things that you can knock down the drain. You, you kind of bubble expands as you pick things up, right, and then you yeah. can bump into things. It's a little and it bit of Katamari Damacy there. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, like once you get to a certain point, then brushes can't hurt you, but roaches always can, and razor blades always can. But there's like this tiny little woman with a broom who sometimes comes out of the drain. And if you pick up the tiny woman with the broom, then you get to hold her broom. Sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> and you can if you if you hit a cockroach directly head on with the broom, kind of like the the lance and the pterodactyl and joust, then you can destroy a roach. But the the goal is not to clean up the entire sink. Uh, the goal is to clean up as much of it as you can before the drain or when the drain turns green, then you go back to the drain and descend to the next level. It's a uh, yeah, it's it's very strange. Um but it, it has a lot going on, kind of, you know, kind of like Robotron. Yeah, it wasn't a particularly popular game. I think a lot of people started playing and just wondered what the hell was going on because it's a non-violent mm-hmm. game, basically, although you're knocking things down drains and sort of bumping into things. Um, it was designed as a non-violent game. Yeah. Um, I think it predates Frogger. And I, I think no, it's... No, Frogger's... Does it, does it predate... Oh, maybe it Bubbles does. is 82. Frogger was 82 also. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, it does seem weird like in, in an era where everything is like a spaceship game. It's like all the fun of cleaning your kitchen and like virtually cleaning well, it, it I kind guess. Well, it kind of reminds me of a maze chase game in, in a certain sense in that you're collecting things and there are certain hazards that you have to avoid or that, that will chase you, except there's no maze to it. The maze becomes like the, the hazards on the screen. So maybe that was – it was like – Somewhere between a shooter and a maze chase game, and the, the the it was too far in between to kind of belong to either, and was too confusing for people. Yeah, that was definitely very weird. Uh, but there were a few other games that are probably worth mentioning. There was Make Tracks. Did you ever play that one? Never saw that one. I'm not sure if it was released in the UK during my period. Uh, okay. Because from what I can see of it, it it kind of looks like Rally X, but the uh, the the purpose is more like Crush Roller. And that you're like trying to fill up um, all the the areas of the maze or the the, the screen with a color as you go over it. Um, there was Splat, which was also by John Newcomer, um, and oh, actually, maybe that was maybe I was mistaken with Bubbles. Maybe Bubbles wasn't John Newcomer, but Splat was. Uh, and that one is really baffling. It's really complicated. It's yeah. like a food fight game. That's what I was thinking. Food fight, the arcade game. Wait, yeah, does it, but does it predate food fight, man? I think so. But it, so so it's okay. So it's like this top down shooter where there's a conveyor belt at the top of the screen, and it's dropping food like corn and bananas and stuff, and you have to grab onto it, and then once you grab a piece of food, you can throw it. In, like in in you know cardinal directions at your opponent and try to knock their head off and when your head is knocked off you can't throw anything you have to go chase after your head and if you take another hit while your head is off then you'll die so it's kind of like sonic's rings i guess it's the prequel to decap attack i think <laughs> just make those genesis references <laughs> um it's yeah it's just really weird i i, I have never seen that in the arcade but it's, I it's a bizarre game um Roller Aces, which was basically pole position on roller skates, very 1970s. Um, Star Rider is pretty interesting. I can't find good video footage of it because Star Rider was a hybrid Laserdisc um, raster graphics game. So 
I can't there I know there were a few others like that in the arcade back then, but not a lot. That was kind of like um like Silphied for Sega CD, where it had like the FMV streaming underneath the actual gameplay graphics. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was like a race game that you kind of avoiding things on the road. It was incredibly difficult to play, and I think I don't think that they've made that many of them. I think the the the, the, the technology was incredibly unreliable. It was kind sure of one was, of those yeah. early sort of pre Dragon's Lair type games, or around about the same time, and that technology was notorious for breaking. So. Um, you know, I think that it's a very expensive machine, so only kind of really big banner arcades could afford to, to, to have them. Yeah, but, you know, I'm sure that it was kind of mind-blowing to play at the time because it was this sort of over-the-shoulder... No, actually, it was a first-person racer. Yeah. So you're, like, flying around in these jet bikes, and, you know, the only rendered video game elements, like, that the computer is producing are the other racers and, and the score, but... Like the the graphics are big, very detailed and colorful. There's a rear view, uh, like mirror space in the back, you know, with a, the or at the bottom of the screen, so you can see what's behind you. And then everything else is all streamed from Laserdisc. So there's this very complicated track. It looks like something out of Tron's Matrix, uh, the the game grid or whatever. Uh, it's it's de- very definitely influenced by Tron. Very CG rendered looking. Um, and the game is very fast. Like it's probably there probably weren't a lot of racers that fast until F Zero, um, and it may even be faster than the original F Zero if you want to if you want to be honest. Um, so it's kind of pole position ish, but it gave you this first person immersive perspective with very elaborate, fast paced, complicated, convoluted tracks. Um, so I'm sure it was it was an amazing game to play, but it's you know one I never saw and. Like I said, it's just impossible to uh, to reproduce it. I think without the original laser discs, so it's it's kind of one of those that's pretty much lost to history. Hmm. Did you ever see one in person? No, never saw it. I only seen a few videos here and there, and uh, and all of the videos are you know sort of over the shoulder of the mm. person that's playing it. Yeah, you can you can get like videos of the streaming laser disc, just like the laser disc content, or you can get you know GoPro type camera views of the arcade game, but. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's in Mame, so it's it's a. Uh, there's a lot going on there. Uh, let's see. There was Moto Race USA, which looks like a really kind of crappy racing game, top down, sort of APB ish. Not really doing much for me. Blaster, which was very very convoluted. Did you ever play that one? I think I played that one at an arcade show. Um, it's kind of a little bit like a. Buck Rogers, mm. um, Space sort of, Harrier. yeah, expanded it's Space Harrier, but yeah, expanded sprites, three um, D type game where you're kind of flying to space, and it's very weird. You've got all sorts of garbage flying at you, and you've mm. got to shoot certain things and avoid other things and pick up um, tumbling space astronauts. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, kind of a weird game. Definitely not, not sort of. Does doesn't follow that classic Williams sort of you know you're in an environment kind of thing. It's it's almost like a rail shooter. It basically. is a rail shooter, yeah. And um, yeah, just not not a huge amount of fun. Basically, is another one of those sort of marquee games that looks really cool, designed to to sort of probably cost a uh, fifty cents rather than twenty five cents. Um, but yeah, not a huge amount of fun. Yeah, just just watching video streams of it. There's a lot happening in that game. <laughs> Um, and I'm sure it was very, very cool to look at, but it doesn't actually look that fun. It looks very kind of frustrating because it's also first-person perspective. 
And collision detection on some of the items seems really fussy. Like sometimes you, you'll see a guy recording the video take a hit and you're like, really? That, that kind of a hit. But it is interesting because that game had a shield, so your shield would be whittled down with collisions. It wasn't like one hit you die. And on top of that, you had a continue feature. So you could actually feed the machine a quarter after you died, and you could continue exactly where you left off, which games didn't really do back then. You even retained your score. Um, and then once you hit level 20, it stopped allowing you to continue. So basically, um, that was kind of a common style in sort of the later era of arcade and home games. You could play and continue until you got to a certain point, and then it was basically just like, well, how far can you get on, on one one life at this point? Um, so pretty pretty ambitious. Um, let's see. There was also Inferno, an isometric shooter, which seems like <laughs> an escapee from the spectrum. Very, very unusual for an R- U.S. arcade game. Mystic Marathon, which is this like drug trip, endless runner kind of game. It's all pinks and pastels and you're like teddy bears running through these surreal environments. Very strange. So, uh, yeah, William's kind of, uh, I, th- I think like everyone else sort of in the mid-80s, they, they, they struggled a bit to kind of define themselves. The classic era of like very straightforward video games had kind of dried up and people wanted more. But people who were geared to that, you know, designers who were geared to that kind of classic game style, I think struggled a little bit to uh, define direction. So, um, yeah, then there was Joust 2, which basically turned Joust on its side. It was much more vertical, um, not quite as accessible as the first game. There's a lot more going on, but, but pretty cool. Yeah, and then, they just sort of did a Stargate, really, you know, which is sort of take the basis of the game and throw a whole bunch of mm-hmm. additional stuff in there that doesn't doesn't really enhance the game makes it that much more complex i mean i played it quite quite a lot and it was just a very very hard game to play it Mm. was a a very unforgiving a a lot more unforgiving than the original and i think you know they perhaps the designers that assume that you know this is for for joust fans that kind of really know how to play the game but uh, coming in cold it was it was uh, you know incredibly unforgiving and then finally, the the last of Williams' classic arcade games, Bob's personal favorite. Narc. I love it. I love it. I love Narc. Tell us, tell us all about Narc. Uh, Bob, Narc you've is, been you've been very quiet. Narc is a a horrible prediction of the police state that America would become in the uh, the next millennium. I think that's really the premise of the game. No, I think it was either uh, Midway. Uh, Cops don't wear cool helmets like that, though. They don't. No, wait. They should. They, they kind of do now, but uh, they're not cool. <laughs> Uh, But anyways, Narc, uh, I don't know if uh, Williams was uh, cynically playing into the uh, anti-drug movement of the 80s or if they were taking the piss out of it or whatever. But um, it is a game that is essentially, that's the premise. Like everyone that you meet on the streets is a junkie scumbag. uh, And you can either shoot them or bust them, I guess. And if you bust them, which is the peaceful way to arrest them or to get them out out of your hair... It's worth more points, but it's also harder to do. And it's just a really ridiculous uh, game. Like, really it's violent. Extremely too. violent. Yeah. So, like, guys, me, guys explode, right? Yeah, yeah. Part of me thinks it's, it is a piss take. Um, you know, this came out around the same time as Robocop, the movie. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, the, they the idea, like, it. yeah, it's, um, you know, it's bad to do drugs, but just blow the hell out of everyone. That's and, fine. And take home evidence because it's yours, right? <laughs> like, you just take cash and uh, think. Like, I remember I had, like, a, a like an NES 
guidebook like there were a billion of them back then and one of them pointed out like why are the cops just taking this money they find like why do they get to use it it's it's a strange uh strange ethical uh question to throw out there but yeah narc narc is bizarre and uh i guess is that the last of the williams games like uh, um, period the last of the big ones I mean, at this point they um they bought midway uh let's see they acquired bally midway in 1988 so at, at this point um I think Williams kind of it's 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 integral identity sort of fades away into Midway. And so you see games like Smash TV, Total Carnage, Mortal Kombat that are all technically Williams, but they're, you know, they're Midway properties. Mm-hmm. Like um it's it, it's all it's all a little fuzzy like trying to trace the history. This is something I was talking about at the beginning of the show. Um in 1988, Williams acquired Bally Midway. Um in 1998, 10 years later, it basically dropped all its video game properties completely and spun all its video game stuff into the Midway property, which it, you know, took outside of the Williams brand. Um, in 1999, it closed its pinball division in favor of slots. And in 2009, Midway went bankrupt and was acquired by Warner Brothers. So WMS, basically, as we know it now, was established about 15 years ago and sent Williams off or Midway off to make their video games. Um, so, you know, a lot of mergers and, and acquisitions. Midway and Williams actually had a, a long relationship. Midway was one of uh, Williams' top main competitors in the pinball biz back in the 60s and 70s, along with Gottlieb, uh, who was just, you know, made a few games like Qbert. Um so, you know, it was like these old rivals merging and then kind of branching off. And, you know, Atari sort of did the same thing and is actually part of this history because um, the Atari properties were bought by, by Midway. So, wait, Warner Brothers owns all of this then. Is that correct? Do they still own all the Midway stuff? Or I, do we I would assume that? that Warner Brothers owns Williams Properties because – I'm assuming Williams' properties were bundled off into Midway when Midway was spun off in 1988, okay. 1998. But I don't know for certain. It's all this is this is what makes old video games <laughs> so hard to track down and figure out the property rights and everything like that because there have been so many mergers and acquisitions and divestments and it's just like who even knows? There's there's probably some place where you can get this information, but I can't imagine where. I just want to know if we're going to get a Revolution X HD. As it was intended to be seen, I think Crystal that depends. Clear I think that depends on uh, Steve Tyler. Is he still into it? He's still alive. So, <laughs> but and but based he, on his career, he'll do anything for money. So uh, that is true. I, I think he'd do it. Maybe the next uh, season of um, of The Voice will have a Res- Revolution X sequence. I'd love to see that. <laughs> I would actually watch it. So um, I don't know if we want to talk about the midway years of, of Williams or not. These are really the ones I, I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're running a little, we're not running long, but we're towards the end. But these are the ones I'm most familiar with, really. I mean, like I said, like all of these games on this list passed uh, from NARC onwards. That was like what was in all of my arcades when I was going from the late 80s to the mid 90s. And yeah, see, these were all games that didn't interest me, so I kind of lost touch with them. Like the, the classic Midway games or classic Williams games in the, the Golden Age. Uh, I played a lot of those, but you know, um, I think when though, they when they, when it went when it went midway, I was just like, oh, okay, whatever. NBA Jam, though, I mean, we have to talk about that, right? 
sure. it's like a genius product because it makes sports palatable to people who don't like sports. And I think sports games um, forgot to do that for a while, and they probably still forget. But I didn't care about basketball, but I I put like a lot of money into NBA Jam, and I and I rented the home versions and stuff like that because it was fun. And they managed to like just distill the basic rules of the sport into a very like simple and like entertaining premise. That is super exaggerated too. Yeah, it didn't take itself very seriously. You had like big head mode and you had all kinds of weird characters like Bill Clinton um, that you could play as. Like I just can't imagine anyone making a game like that now or if, if they did, making it successfully. Like I, yeah. think, I think they would try to take it too seriously or they would try too hard to be funny. Whereas NBA Jam just kind of felt like it was just throwing stuff at the wall. It didn't feel calculated, I guess. Uh, there was uh, a bit of a sincerity to it that, you know, I, I don't have much interest in it, but it was just goofy as opposed to like, hey, guys, look at how funny this is. Ah. And I'm sure, like, I remember reading this and maybe I can look it up in a second, but I'm sure it broke arcade records. I, I remember reading that somewhere, like NBA Jam is one of the most popular um, arcade units of all time, like, period. Yeah, it is. Just because. Number four, I believe. Number four, wow, yeah. It was ubiquitous. The same with Adam, Adam's Family Pinball, like. Any arcade I go to now will have NBA Jam of some sort, I think. Yeah, it was, it was multiplayer. I mean, I, th- I think that was one of the things that really made it great was, you know, people would have cash games based on it and, yeah. and you know, uh, just a really fun fun game to play. And, you know, I think it's it's something that deserves another shot. I'm, I'm sure if, if, if somebody did decide to make another kind of game like this, that it would probably do quite well as an, maybe the, as an indie We had that this, weird this property comes reboot, back, right? Yeah, the concept comes back every once in a while, but it's just never done right. Uh-huh. Everyone always looks at it and says, mm, no. I think the weird dissonance, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but just like seeing, I think that game cannot be removed from those digitized players. Mm-hmm. Like that's what makes it for me because their heads don't always fit nicely on their bodies and things like that. It's like that doesn't that doesn't really look like Bill Clinton, but just how silly the game looked I think really added to how fun it was. I don't get the same like, kind of feeling out of polygons or anything like that. Right. Again, it was goofy and it didn't take itself too seriously and it didn't feel strained and like a contrived, oh, this is terrible, isn't it? Ha, ha, ha. And it's just hard to escape that now. Everyone's too self-aware. Yeah, cynicism is ruining the this country. Pandora's ironic box. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, you know you had games like Smash TV and Total Carnage, which were very self-aware. They were very like um, kind of uh, Running Man-ish. It reminded me of the, uh, the "I'd buy that for a dollar" guy from Robocop. Oh yeah, they like, just stole that joke, right? Yeah, I, I think so. This yeah. is ours now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like it was it was taking that sort of like isn't television ridiculous and what's TV of the future? It's just stupid and horrible and exploitative. And actually they were right. I mean people don't technically kill each other on reality shows but Smash TV is not that far removed from something like Survivor. Yeah, or like Fear um, Factor. Instead of shooting a, a guy with tank treads for legs, you're just eating a lot of bugs. Right. So uh, I feel like, you know, that's a, that's a game that was very much um, – kind of a, a, a voice in the wilderness back in the day. But now it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, a goofy TV show. Okay, and it did have that dual uh, joystick. I was going to say they're kind of modeled yeah. after Robotron, so mm-hmm. they're same sort of thing, but a little bit more sophisticated. Um, you know, uh, Smash TV was supposed to be the sequel to, to Robotron. Basically. Yeah, was was that a Eugene Jarvis game? 
No, but Eugene, I believe, consulted a little mm. bit on it and, and, and helped out. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was uh, to all intents and purposes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was multiplayer too. So it had a bit of gauntlet to it, especially with like the fact that there were different exits to like secret stages and things, that sort of thing. Like it wasn't a, just a linear shooter. Like you could kind of go in your own direction. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that made it interesting. It was very much a, like sort of a culmination of a lot of different arcade ideas, but uh, even though it wasn't really my cup of tea, like I, I can still appreciate it and recognize that there was a lot of a lot of pretty smart thinking. Um, of course, there was Mortal Kombat, which oh, yeah. That's is probably be... its own episode. Yeah, I was going to say we, sh- we should save that because uh, I'm not the biggest fan, but I'm sure we can talk enough about it, get some people in here. Most likely. Um, the Cruisin' Games, uh, which were... I don't really know my racing games as well as you, Jazz. So what, what makes the Cruisin' series unique? Is it just that it's over the top? Yeah, it's over the top. You know, I, th- I think it, you know, it's a step beyond OutRun, that kind of game. Um, you know, sort of travel across America, very kind of smart-themed levels. I never really got on with the game that that much. Um, but, you know, they, they were very popular at the time. And... Um, you know, sort of a little bit of a swan song for for Williams, really. Um, I think uh, at, the, at that point, I don't think they produced much after that. Um. Yeah, I mean, that was it. Was kind of a another one of those series that was everywhere. Like you can still go to truck stops and you'll find Cruising Games and Revolution X, both of which are by Midway Williams. Yeah. Um, they're just they were everywhere. And for whatever reason, they just caught on. Uh, the Cruisin' series became really big on Nintendo 64 for some reason. Like, when I think just of Cruisin', <laughs> I think of N64. Me too. They were uh, part of the Dream Team. God, what a team that was. Uh, I, I want to talk about Revolution, Revolution X for just one minute. That's cool. Sure, Because it's so, uh, like, I, I don't like Aerosmith, but like everyone in the 90s, I did inexplicably. It was a weird time. Uh, lots of strange things were happening in the 90s, folks. Um, but... I, I love this game just in, in retrospect, ironically. I mean, I know we talked about how irony, irony ruined everything, but there, like before you start a level, there are these like little clips of Aerosmith acting, and I'm using scare quotes. And at best, they have a three-second line to say, but I have a feeling like they did, they did 50 takes with each of these guys, and they got the best one. So those clips in and of themselves are funny, which is why I am Bob Stop the New Order bus, Mackie, because I don't know which member of Aerosmith says that, but it is the worst line reading of like... Five words, <laughs> I guess, I've ever heard in my life. So, yeah, it only takes a quarter to see that. So please uh, drop a quarter in Revolution X, where music is the weapon because it's Aerosmith music. really about wraps it up for Williams. Um, they burned brief and bright. Um, like I said, you know, the, the company kind of went through a lot of changes in the 90s. It acquired Midway, then got rid of Midway, then got rid of its pinball business, then just got rid of video games and everything entirely. And now they're all about casinos, coin-op uh, slot machines and that sort of thing. Um, kind of a sad but maybe inevitable end to a legendary arcade game maker, uh, basically the company that revolutionized pinball 
and then made some pretty damn good video games too. Um, I mean, you look and you can see this DNA of games like Defender and especially Robotron in so many contemporary games. I mean, Defender had basically the ultimate bootleg sequel in Resogun for PS4. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would have thought that a launch title for PS4 would be Defender? But I guess the idea was Xbox 360 launched with a bootleg version of uh, Robotron in Geometry Wars. So maybe Sony was trying to drum up some secret sauce by digging into the Williams ca- uh, catalog themselves. In any case, it was a great game, and you know it's based very, very, very closely on, on the design of Defender. So... It's just proof that, you know, 30 years later, 30, 35 years later, uh, these these game concepts that Williams and their designers came up with still have merit. Still, They're still fun to play. Uh, I, you know, if I could find a Defender arcade game, I would definitely drop some quarters into it to, to get kind of that proper experience that Jazz mentioned. Um, there, there are a few companies who made arcade games back in the early 80s that just really stuck with me, and Williams was one of them. Hmm. You also had Atari with games like Tempest and Namco with games like Pac-Man. They were they were one of the greats, for sure. And if you go into any arcade today, the few that remain, there's going to be like most of these games in them, at least the newer ones, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I just you can't you can't go to an arcade without seeing a cruising game. I'm sorry, yep. it just it's always there. It you don't even have to go there. to an arcade, like I said, a gas station. Yeah, yeah. Like you you step out of the bathroom at a truck stop and ah, there's cruising, or in a uh, a bar or a pizza shop. Yep, that and some Sega Safari game. (laughs) So anyway, um, I guess that wraps it up. Jazz, is there anything else that you would like to add about Williams? No, just just that they really, for me, kind of represent the golden age of arcades. You know, just just incredible games that sort of uh, set templates that are still, you know, just as fresh now as as they were back then. Um, You know, brilliant visionary design and technically stunning games too. I think that's, you know, the other thing was whenever a new Williams game came out, you know, graphically they were superior. Um, You know, conceptually they were streets ahead of the competition. Just, uh, just, just, just brilliant, brilliant games. And that's, that's why, you know, a couple of them at least are amongst my, sorry, uh, amongst my all-time favorite games. Bob? Like I said, I'm a big fan of Cruising USA. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I, I'm sad I didn't get to play the early uh, Midway games just because um, – sorry, Williams. Wait, Williams, yeah, Williams. right? We're doing, okay. <laughs> yeah, even I lost track. Uh, I, I'm, I regret not being able to play these because they just weren't available, but I did have some great moments with the, um, the 90s games, even if it wasn't completely Williams, you know? So mm-hmm. like I said, whenever I'm in an arcade, I see these games and I have to play at least one of them. So it, like the love affair with these games hasn't ended for me. Was uh did was Narka a Eugene Jarvis game? Yes. Okay. So I think there might have been some sincerity to that he's he's also the guy who created Target Terror. So, oh no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not sure how much of that is like, like you said, him taking the piss, and how much of it is actually coming from a place of sincerity. But mm. uh, there is that kind of lineage there. So who knows? Yeah. In any case, um, if you see a Williams game in an arcade or a retro bar or something, you can pretty much be assured that if you put some money into it, you will have a good time, even if it's very complicated and you die quickly. (laughs) So anyway, that wraps it up for this episode of Retronauts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, I'm Jeremy Parrish. This week we also had Bob Mackey. Hey, everybody. Should I tell people what to look at and where to go? Okay, well, you can find me on Twitter as Bob Servo. I also write for usgamer.net, which you should be reading all the time anyways. 
And I also write for Something Awful. And I'm doing a new podcast with Laser Time called Talking Simpsons where we go through every Simpsons episode in order. So you need to subscribe you to their Patreon. You finally found a con gaming project, Bob. Exactly. But uh, it's not uh, – I guess I guess it works. So, yeah, it's, we're doing that. It's cron gaming in another medium. It's not free. It's but shifted. if you donate a little bit of money to Laser Time, you will get to listen to that podcast. And I'm going to do it until I die probably because The Simpsons <laughs> will never end. <laughs> And I'm Jazz Rignall. You can find me on Twitter at Jazz Rignall, one Z, and I also write for usgamer.net. And finally, I'm Jeremy Parrish. You can find me on Twitter at GameSpite. Um, I also reblog other people's funny images on Tumblr, GameSpite.tumblr. Um, I write for, game, uh, for usgamer.net as well and also have my fun little project, Game Boy World, where I continue to play pachinko games and Gundam spinoffs great times It'll guaranteed get, it gets for all. better right no it really okay. doesn't it just gets worse the more the more publishers join the game boy world the the worse it gets mm. anyway but that's part of the fun of it so um, check that out and we all write for us gamers so check that site out keep us employed it's great um, and of course retronauts also needs your support god we're just so demanding we're so 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 needy it's just like we have our little hat out here. We just Please ask put once. money in the Patreon hat. <laughs> we ask once an episode. I think that's fine. Okay, okay. It's just, yeah. Um, so please, please support us, uh, poor, poor wretched game journalists on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash retronauts. One dollar a month uh, could partially feed a starving child, but it could also help produce a podcast. And which is more important, do you say? I think we all know the answer. So please uh, help our starving podcast. I think by the time this goes live, we'll probably be at the $3,000 tier. looks like we're going to get there. Yeah, so that means three events throughout the year. I'm pretty sure we're going to do Portland. Oh, we for haven't sure, already yeah. done it. Maybe MAGFest. Maybe just fly to Japan and, and grace Tokyo with a, like, we'll just sit in, in Harajuku at the station and proclaim about retro video games live and no one will have any idea what we're talking about. It sounds amazing. I want to do that. I want to do it too. Um, anyway, so that's enough of the panhandling. Um, check us out on retronauts.com, on Twitter as Retronauts, uh, Facebook, SoundCloud, Libsyn, iTunes. Give us reviews. We're cool. We love you. Uh, and I think that's probably everything. Did I get everything? That no. should be everything. Okay, I got everything. Great. So, Jazz, thanks again for coming in. That's thanks for great. sharing yeah, thanks, your uh, your love of Williams. A lot of fun. We'll have you again sometime when the occasion demands. And we will be back next week with a tiny episode. I don't know what, but it will be small. Mm-hmm.